Support for Switched On Pop comes from VibeCheck. If you need more of my friend Sam Sanders in your life, then you'll want to check out his new pod called VibeCheck. Each week, Sam and his two best friends, writer Saeed Jones and journalist and producer Zach Stafford, make sense of what's going on in the news and culture, from foreign policy to how to heal from a breakup. Every Wednesday, they check the vibe of what's going on in the world and how it all feels. It's like your favorite group chat come to life. Listen to and follow Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences. So there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Welcome to Switched on Pop. I'm songwriter Charlie Harding, and our co-host Nate is currently on the Isles of Scotland touring with his band. In his absence, I've been wanting to talk about something for a very long time, which has been the dominance of electronic music on the pop charts. So over the past couple of weeks, I've been investigating the backstory of how these sounds came through the realm of house music. But before we get there, I want to start today with a story. No, it was never just about the party. It was about it was about congregation. It was about getting together with people where racism and sexism and homophobia and all the other isms that divide us were not an issue. That's Michael Selkind, and he brings us a story of how music that we listen to when we're young can be truly transformative to who we become. I was so focused on getting out of Kansas for so long. You know, I really like knew that I couldn't really be the person I wanted to become living in a small town. I used to work when I was a teenager at a, at a shop in downtown Lawrence, Kansas, and I was like the stock boy when I was 16 and washed the windows and did all the kind of like menial labor. And one of my coworkers, who's still a good friend today, was an out gay guy um, who was really into house music and he knew that I was into it because we would listen um, sometimes to music in the store when we were like, Closing, and we turned off the store music, and he would put on his his like DJ mixes. There were these particular things that he liked that that I was tuning into. So he was like, "Look, I have like an extra wristband from this club with with my work friends." I would tell my parents I was going camping, and I would sneak out. The club was called Tremors, by the way. So Tremors had a what was called a family night, which is in the '90s, I guess. 
you wouldn't say you had a gay night because you wouldn't want, you know, somebody to come and commit some kind of hate crime or something. So you'd call it family night and it was kind of code for being the gay night um, in the, in the, you know, the small town straight bar that had a gay night. So Josh gave me his wristband and we went, we like went in and I was clearly underaged and I was super nervous and I was like, you know, I wasn't out of the closet or anything, but um, I was like, I really like this music. I'm going to go here and I'm going to dance and I'm going to like experience this. I remember being super nervous, but also feeling like uh, a kind of sense of freedom and, and a, like a this kind of liberatory possibility um, in that moment of like, am I supposed to be here? You know, is this for me? Like, what does this mean? You know, this is kind of crossing a, a line that I can't go back from. House music, when I started to hear that as a teenager, something about it felt like it was connecting me to some sort of incipient sense of who I was or could be or someplace that I, you know, people like me had come from. There was just something kind of that's hard to to put your finger on. But I think a lot of queer people that identify with house culture and house music do get this sense that this is something that is for them and by them or by people like them. I think that those those party spaces in Kansas City and in Lawrence like really prepared me to like do the next thing. Kind of like moving up a ladder, right? Like you get socialized in a particular dance music culture um, and then you age out of it and go into the next echelon of, of, a, of a party culture. And the, the younger people in that community will socialize you and then they'll move on. So it's kind of like like this stair step thing. I think for me, it meant like getting a deeper sense of not of house music, not as only a, a set of sounds or not just like, you know, what some people that very surface level understanding of that four to the floor kick drum that you can put on top of kind of anything, but as something that was knit to a history of um, politicized people who were queer and queer of color and like feminine spectrum and all kinds of like different uh, from each other and from people outside the clubs they were going to. I think that leveling up for me meant finding more spaces where more of those people were partying together. And I don't think that really happened for me until I started going out in New York City. And I would go down to parties at MoMA's PS1 in Queens, which is like their kind of little sister affiliate. Um, the Museum of Modern Art has these warm-up parties with house DJs and electronic musicians. It was a collaboration with this crew from a New York um, City house music institution called Body and Soul. They're like this old school crew who's been probably some of them partying together since the 70s when when New York's di disco scene was really popping off. But I remember that feeling of being in a space where you had probably three or four, you know, generations. You had people who could be the grandparents and the children and the grandchildren all together. It was just that vibe of being around people who had been doing this for like 40 years. And then also with people that had just started doing it and the kind of loving, like permissive, um, uplifting kind of energy that everybody was exchanging with each other and with the DJ. And that for me was the first time I was like, okay, this is not just something I'm into. This isn't something I casually consume. This is like, this is something that's a part of my identity now. This is a spiritual practice. This is something I'm interested in pursuing. Something clicked for me and... Um, had a different relationship to house music at that point. Micah didn't just find himself 
and his community through House, he found a passion, and he's turned that passion into his work. He's currently working on a book on the history of Chicago house music. And I'm really excited to welcome him back to the show to teach us about the origins of house. So, Micah, do you mind reintroducing yourself and telling us what you're up to today? Sure. Uh, my name is Micah Salkind, and I'm a recent graduate of the Ph.D. program in American Studies at Brown University. Broadly, I study race, place and popular culture and how people kind of make sense of popular culture as an emplaced experience. But my dissertation project is about Chicago house music, how it was born in uh, the mid 70s in underground queer of color loft spaces in Chicago and how it continues to be an important archive of Chicago musical history today and, and a living archive that can that can tell us so much about how people experience uh, their lives through music. So I thought what would be fun is we could take a modern track, which is drawing from these traditions very explicitly and use it as a way of breaking down what the cultural aesthetics are that we're hearing in house music. And I think you had a good idea for this. Yeah, so I thought the um, the Kaiser track, Hideaway, which was l- released in um, early 2014, would be a great way for us to talk about how house music still has a really big influence on uh, on the sounds that we hear today. So here's what we should do. Why, why don't we take a listen to it and then come back and break down the different elements that we're hearing, which are quintessentially house. Great. What are you hearing? Anybody who listens to this song is going to hear Kaisa's vocals, right? Like this kind of diva vocal with the really like almost she's reaching for notes that she almost can't even sing. Mm. Um, You know, and I've seen her do live takes of this and she has a phenomenal voice. I think she was trained at Berklee College of Music in Boston. Um, But that that diva vocal, which really, you know, I think the quintessential diva vocal that you hear all through the life cycle of house music is, is that of Chicago artist Lolita Holloway. who gives us the amazing love sensation that we know from, you know, Black Box in the 1990s. Um, you know, so she's a featured performer on so, ma- so many different tracks. Um, that, that I hear so upfront in Kaiza's delivery. First, that vocal, that diva vocal, is, is huge um, for house, and and not, and you know, and the lyrics, the lyrics aren't too meaningful, right? It's like you're getting, you know, like like a lot of pop, you're getting um, an idea more than you're getting a story, right? Platitudes about love and feeling. Yeah, exactly. Which you know, when you're dancing in a club, that's about the that's about the most that I can take in lyrically <laughs> a lot of times. I also feel like we're getting a, a, a like a pretty direct reference back to Madonna's Vogue, which was sort of the first mega house hit that crossed over to the pop mainstream. Oh, yeah, certainly, like, 
there's a kind of like Madonna-like element uh, in terms of her like needing to be the triple threat dancer, singer, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> and compositionally is there too. Like it's both start with a sort of like slow build, synthy stuff. Yeah, yeah. And that 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 deliberately synthesized string sound that you know, it's not it's not trying to sound like an actual orchestral arrangement. It's actually wearing that aesthetic of the string sound from from Chicago in the mid 80s uh, very boldly. So this is so it's a reference of a reference, basically. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 like a great way to think about it is that it's like this kind of dense palimpsest of musical <laughs> references. If, if like House in the 80s is referencing disco from the 70s, now we're referencing House from the 80s, and so it's just synths referencing synths, referencing strings. Yeah. Oh, it's just totally, we never leave. We're just always coming back to disco. Tell, tell me about uh, tell me about drums because I feel like this is this is where uh, the like the most obvious idiom is coming across. Right. Well, you have these 808 kick drums, or 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 some sort of synthesized kick drum that's emulating the the thickness of the 808 sound, which which is which is the Roland synthesizer, which came out in the 80s. Yeah, which is Roland synthesizer that they came out with in the early 80s. That drum sound was a revelation for producers in Chicago because previously you just didn't have that kind of depth and richness on that you could program with with uh, previous uh, drum machines. The 808 was really what broke. Um, digital drum machines into mainstream pop music production. And people still use it everywhere. Oh, that yeah. sound is constantly emulated even though the device came out what, 36 years ago. I think that it's really the connective tissue between all pop music today. Mm. So you have the 808 four to the floor kick drum. Yeah, exactly. And you have that hand clap sound too, which is something that was, I believe, on the 808 as well. That sort of like... Um, I mean, it's hard to describe it in another way, but you can hear it when you hear it, and it's very upfront in the Kaiser song. Do you have any like famous tracks with great clap sounds that you? Uh, oh from, from gosh! Early house? Like, how many oh are God. there? Right, but. Um, it's like it's like so many. Um, <laughs> we could we could have a whole another show about that, Charlie. Just, just clapping. Just like when you hear that clap sound in a song. Um, <laughs> But so there's, and then you know, in addition to that, there's this baseline melody, this like yeah. rubbery baseline that is the actually the lead melody for much of the song. Um, so it's sort of like there's kind of two two dominant melodies. There's that baseline dun 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 dun, dun. and then there's the diva vocals over the top of that. And I think that those and the drums are sort of what make this classic house sound. The, the bass actually reminds me of this really famous early house track, the, the Juice by Mr. Fingers. Which is oh. the track that Kanye sampled on his song. What was it that you were playing over and over? Oh, Fade? Yeah, so it's this thing. I just fade away. I feel it. Oh yeah. 
where like that baseline feels like the, the repetition, the its syncopation, its tonality feels referenced in the Kaiser track. Right, you know, the, and, and the Mr. Fingers is like really the Chicago House supergroup. It's actually the, a pseudonym of the artist Larry Hurd, but their music is really the, the blueprint for so much of what came out um, in the 90s and, and after in terms of house music globally. Hmm. Um, so yeah, no doubt that that's in the musical DNA of the Kaiser track. All right, so we got the vocals, the diva vocals, the string arrangement, the drums, the bass. You had something else you were going towards. Well, one of the things that I think about, and I'm not sure that there's something I specifically I can point to in this particular track, but maybe in the way that I would play it as a DJ, is the idea of surprising your audience, sort of adding mm. what what uh, Frank Broughton calls bombshells and surprises into the mix. <laughs> so that could be anything from a Martin Luther King speech to a train whistle to um, some sort of sound effect. Mm. And I think that you want to keep people guessing as much as you want to give them what they want. Um, and I think that a lot of times that that comes through in house music production today of like, there's some little edge in there that because otherwise it's just too saccharine. You have to have something to disrupt that. Got to have the novelty to disrupt the familiarity. Exactly. Yeah, I think something that's going to like give your audience pause or or make it not quite so easy. And, you know, certainly there's you could argue with someone about what what gives them pause. But um, yeah, I think the idea of having a bombshell or a surprise in a track or or when you play a track is a, a really important element to this. So what are you what are you hearing here as a bombshell? Well, let's listen to a little bit more. Maybe okay. we can we can point one out. Here's another thing, Charlie. That it's not a direct sample, but that string part we just heard and that part you played yeah. um, is to me really really calls up um, rhythm is rhythm, strings of life from 1987. So that, in comparison to like... Oh, you're hearing that background string section in this thing. Yeah. It's not the same melody, but it's it's such a close... There's something so... And to me, if I was on the dance floor, hearing that as like someone who's got a rich history in house music, I would notice mm. that connection, and that would give me a kind of pleasure... You know, right. it's, it's what um, ethnomusicologist Stephen Feld would call participatory discrepancy, maybe. Like, it's almost like a, a jarring, a moment that jars you out of your pleasure, but like there's pleasure in that huh. wonderment or like huh. that, 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 like not knowing quite what, where, what you're hearing that is giving you pause. Right. Cause there's a, there's a really strong rhythmic connection between the two. Right. Yeah. And, and a, um, a textural connection between the the synthesizer right 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 like the synthesizer programming is is very as much as like any artist is a product of all their influences i think that with digital music and with house music which is born digital really you have this extra added potential to like wear your influences broadly um mm. and so that that sort of Cita those citational practices can be really interesting and thought-provoking. Right, right. You know, whether you're listening to House on headphones or whether you're dancing to it in a club. So wait, let's see if we can find our bombshell. Yeah, keep going. Oh wait, here we go. We have, a, we have this drop. 
Well, you get you get a whole extra drop, right? No, and that that does feel like a surprise after a pretty straightforward, like pop structure to have this kind of like um, what sounds like an EDM drop now to me. That was like a, that was like a Paul Oakenfield drop. Yeah, Paul right, Oakenfield was his name. Yeah, Paul Oakenfield, big it's like a big room house moment of like. Wah, 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 wah. No, and then you get that like call out that like. What does it say? Even like drop it or like mush it or something right. like that. <laughs> mush. I don't know, you know, and, and I'm, that's funny to try to like shove things into these categories. But I, I think that gives you a sense of the ways that house producers are always kind of like um, aware of how the repetition uh, is both an opportunity and a challenge. I feel like we've just partaken in a practice which is almost... Uh, antithetical to your research practice, which is let's take the thing and <laughs> distill it to its essence. Whereas your research is let's take the thing and do an oral history and discover where it comes from and historicize it. Yeah, I mean, there's like both both the deep, um, close reading and the broad kind of like interpretive work are, are super important when it comes to thinking about this stuff in context. And, you know, like I think what, what uh, you're able to do by really listening closely is important. Okay, so now that we've got the sound in our ear, when we come back, let's take a closer look at the cultural origins and history of house music. This is exciting. Support for Switched on Pop comes from Vibe Check. If you were an Intuit fan and you are missing Sam Sanders, then have no fear. He's back with another great pod called Vibe Check. Each week, Sam and his two best friends, writer Saeed Jones and journalist and producer Zach Stafford, make sense of what's going on in the news and culture from Elon Musk and foreign policy to how to heal from a breakup to Usher's Super Bowl halftime show. They check the vibe of what's going on in the world and how it all feels. They're currently doing a series called Hey Sis, where they're highlighting the compelling stories of black women and their achievements. They're being joined by special guests Regina King, Audie Cornish, Raquel Willis, and more. Vibe Check is your favorite group chat come to life. You can join the weekly Kiki every Wednesday. Listen to and follow Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. Can't believe Sam made me say Kiki. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Okay, so now that we all know the four-to-the-floor kick, that bouncy bass, the synth strings, the diva vocals, I want to go into what might not be so obvious when we're just hearing these sounds. So, Micah, could you share the story of where this music originates? Definitely. House music comes out of both the death of the independent soul music industry in Chicago um, and the kind of death of the national disco industry in the late 70s. Everybody in Chicago knows about disco demolition if they've lived there since the 70s. You're writing about Chicago's disco demolition night in your book. What spurred this event? Yeah, so Disco Demolition Night was a, a promotion that was created by Bill Veck, who owned the White Sox, and his son, Mike Veck, and a radio disc jockey named Steve Dahl. So basically what, what would happen during this Tigers game with the White Sox at Comiskey Park on the south side of Chicago was if you brought a disco record to the, the park and let the... Um, 
let Steve Dahl blow it up at halftime in a big mountain of records, you could get in for 98 cents because uh, Steve Dahl's, uh, the call letters at the, the station he worked at were like 98 something. It was WLUP, it was an album oriented rock station. And, and he had sort of made a name for himself um, yeah. making fun of disco and really deriding it for being this kind of like fake cultural tradition that had no value. So I don't think anybody really knew when they set up that promotion that the response would be so insane. But the, the park was overcrowded. People stormed the field. They, you know, they blew up the records at halftime, but the game never, the White Sox had to forfeit that game. <laughs> oh my gosh. But um, it was this, what I, what I write about in my work is that that was not just um, a ritual death for disco that had kind of reverberations on a national level in terms of um, a rebuke to public queer culture, but also a really uh, a rebuke to um, black and Latino culture in Chicago. Because, um, you know, nobody who was black and Latino who listened to disco music, and a lot of black and Latino folks didn't, I'm sure, but it was definitely a mainstay in black and Latino culture, um, saw Disco Demolition Night as something that wasn't racially charged. So my first chapter is really about how that, that promotion was this locally important event and how it set up and kind of elongated a spatial dynamic wherein queer people and people of color in Chicago and queer people of color were all mushed together in the same kinds of neighborhoods and social spaces. Okay, so then how does house music come out of these neighborhoods and social spaces? Yeah, so house music really comes out of um, what I call a maroon queer of color culture that takes shape in the late 70s in post-industrial loft spaces in Chicago. So black, queer, and Latino dancers who had been experiencing kind of racist discrimination in the white gay discotheques of the city started more and more trying to have their own events. And and, um, really what set the match under the powder keg was uh, a promoter named Robert Williams and a crew of promoters called Us Studios bringing a very talented young DJ from New York named Frankie Knuckles to the city. Frankie Knuckles was the resident um, weekend DJ at a members-only um, social club with a 501c3 juice bar license. So you know, th- this was this is not an alcoholic establishment. This was a cultural organization, and Frankie Knuckles played uh, the best danceable R&B and uh, disco and funk and soul, and he also played the most cutting-edge European new wave punk music and um rare groove african stuff and it just he he was an omnivorous music lover and and he brought that uh that love of music to his audience flash forward a couple of years in there and there are dozens of teenagers in chicago who are now creating their own music that's influenced by the the sound that frankie was spinning you described to me once that house music is disco on a budget What do you mean by that? You know, and that might be a quote from Frank Broughton's book, uh, Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, which is a really excellent uh, account of the history of of dance music. But house producers were really attempting to create versions of the disco sound, um, which was incredibly expensive to produce in its its heyday when it had a lot of um, major label... Backing, you know, you had a string section, you had horn, you had French horns, you had maybe <laughs> saxophones. You really had um, a ton of instrumentation in the arrangements for disco, 
And so what happens when house music, house music um, producers take that disco aesthetic and and use n- new tools like the the, the Roland Corporation's 808 uh, drum machine um, and the 303 bass synthesizer to recreate those sounds as you get this very stripped down, raw, you know, kind of amateur version of that danceable sound. So it's the same tempo, it's, you know, and it's attempting to kind of keep the same feel and energy, but it's uh, an incredibly different musical palette. So often, I guess, now with modern computer uh, music software, it can seem so easy to make that style of music. But Mm -hmm. I went back and tried to learn about some of these early technologies that people were using. I mean, whether it was just the turntable, which to manipulate a turntable really effectively and scratching and beat matching is incredibly skilled. And I was really amazed, especially by the early... What was the Roland bass synth? Oh, the the 303, yeah. Yeah, the, the 303... It was the most complex. It, it was like using a TI eighty five or what? Do you, what are those things called? <laughs> those like the, the, those graphing calculators. It was a graphi- it's like a graphing calculator <laughs> that you're making. Right, music it has like with. a little LCD screen, maybe. <laughs> it's so complicated. That hardware was not easy to figure out and. Um, it wasn't cheap, you know. A lot of people were those those products were originally marketed to studio musicians um, as a way of saving money uh, and not paying <laughs> live musicians for studio sessions. But you know, they're really being taken and used in ways that they were never intended to be used uh, for by these young producers. But and then you know, and then you have turntables that weren't quartz driven. They weren't consistent in terms of how fast they moved. Um, they didn't have records to play on that were made with uh, digital software that, you know, quantized all the beats so that everything was regular. It was, right, right. you had to mix between things that were shifting in time. Um, so it was a much different thing to become a DJ. The, the skill set was, I mean, I, I bow down to these old school DJs because their, um, their sense of rhythm and their timing and the, the ways that they are able to kind of memorize their archives so that they can pull specific musical phrases out and accentuate them that that is it's mastery on a level that I think few people really understand but so it's sort of this this technological change where these cheap samplers and synthesizers all of a sudden allowed the distribution of this same style of music which had been very expensive to be completely underground and in people's bedrooms it's kind of the first like in-house full bedroom production studio that we now can all do on a laptop it's true yeah I mean Hip hop is happening at the same very moment in New York, right? So you have this um, sound in New York City that's influenced by the the ways that Caribbean communities used uh, DJ equipment and creatively misappropriated turntables and mixers and things. And then you have a kind of analog in queer of color communities in Chicago that were then being um, busted open by these these intrepid teenagers who wanted to make their own music. I, I often talk about house music as you know, the twin sister, you know, child of disco, twin sister of, uh, of hip-hop. This is a super interesting topic because I was looking at the top 40 today, and I could draw connections to house music, at least aesthetics, to like at least half the songs, right? You have the rise of... Skrillex and Diplo. And the dominance of 
with Justin Bieber's album. Is it too late now to say sorry? We have Calvin Harris. All these things in the charts right now, which are just like evidently drawing from a house aesthetic. I'm so curious, how do you hear that music in relationship to all the work that you've done? Part of me is always super excited when I hear something on American radio that is obviously um, redolent of house music. Because for so long, it was so difficult to hear that stuff on the radio here. Um, and it's a mixed emotion that I feel because at the one, on the one hand, I'm, I'm excited that it's making waves in the U.S. and I'm hopeful that some audiences will find their way back to the um, to the culture and its origins and sort of where it comes from. But I'm I'm pretty skeptical about uh, about the possibility for that when the representational regime that we have on American radio is so white and straight and kind of you know like look at Diplo, Skrillex, Justin Bieber alone. Like what you know what stories are they able to tell? What life experiences have they had? Yeah. Do you feel like is the is the ubiquity of this music on the radio charts detract from its cultural specificity? I don't know that it detracts from it, but it certainly dilutes it. And it certainly um, covers over the uh, important, the critically important uh, queer, black, and Latino histories of this music in ways that are, that I haven't even begun to fully understand because, you know, it, it's hard, uh, you know, and you know this as someone who thinks about popular music uh, in, in the contemporary moment, um, it's really hard to gain, to have that historical perspective until, you know, you have some some distance and time between you and, and the mm. music. There's a generation of music journalists now who get this and who know right. that what they're hearing isn't new. Um, and there are educated consumers who have different kinds of access points through whether it be through social media or, you know, whatever that are that are talking back to this music and, and holding kind of holding people accountable to their musical ancestors in ways that maybe that, that weren't possible previously. Mm. But, um, you know, I, I, it's part of the impetus for the book. I'm, I'm hoping that on some level this book crosses over for those kids who are showing up to Electric Daisy Carnival or right. what, you know, whatever the, the festivals are um, that are happening today and, and seeing mostly white, straight dudes playing off their laptops, which, you know, can that can be great. Like, I don't want to take away from that experience, but know that that music that they're playing or the way that they're playing it has a history and that it, um, that comes from a place that is, is, is a, is not a place of cultural neutrality. It's a place of, right. you know, it's, it's think about if, if you're talking about gospel music and house music is queer people's gospel music. If you can't, um, if you can't worship in Sunday service because your gender expression or your swish is too kind of too much, then house music spaces become your temple. They become your your church. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that to have that culture erased, especially after the AIDS epidemic, you know, it really literally like devastated these communities in the 80s. Um is really, really difficult to, to um, stomach. But it's also, you know, what are you going to do? Capitalism rolls on and, and the music industry is not, <laughs> not going to stop for, a, for a, a moment of silence. So let's, let, let's run a quick test and see how responsible people should be. So let's look, search <laughs> Skrillex. And what do we get? All right, Wikipedia, Skrillex. And if we check that out, and it looks genres. Electro House. Yeah, and there we then, go. 
Electro House, Stylistic Origins, House. Okay, so I'm like three clicks away, and now I'm immediately learning about the origins of Chicago house music. Great. Like, no excuse yeah. as a listener. Yeah, really. Like, all you have to do is Google the artist's name, and you will be given a hyperlink to a place where you can learn something more. So when when listeners are approaching Calvin Harris or David Guetta or any of these modern major producers... What are you wanting them to hear along with this house aesthetic? I mean, I think if you if you love the, those artists, if you're into this music, find out more about it. Look, look deeper. Um, you know, don't just take for granted that that's the best there is out there. So, I mean, I think that, that for for casual listeners of dance music who find themselves, you know, peaked uh, on that house sound, um, do some research and really like dig because um it'll pay off for you and you'll have a, you'll, you'll enjoy the newer stuff more and you'll find some really amazing um, needles in musical haystacks that you may never have come across otherwise. Given that this music has become such mainstream music, I'm curious what is happening in house in the underground scene? I think house has, is, you know, at least in the past couple of years has really been thriving in the underground um, in some places because they lend themselves to underground uh, social cultures. That really speaks to the um, the longevity of the thing that House was trying to do in its infancy, which was bring people together regardless of who they were and where they came from. Do you have a favorite artist that you're listening to right now? So I'm super into uh, Sean J. Wright and Alinka right now. I'm just super excited about what they're doing. I think it's um, I think it's drawing from house history while pushing the genre forward. I think it's uncompromising. I think it's it's incredibly vulnerable and honest music lyrically, and it's music it's music that's like complex in a lot of ways, um, even while being like danceable and really groovy. Um, so I'd love if more people knew about artists like Sean and Alinka. I think that our pop music soundscape would benefit from that. So you've come a long way from the dance parties in Kansas City and are now writing a book on the history of Chicago house music. With all that you know now, what would you say to your younger self? Oh man, I would have said, Queen, you better keep being weird because nobody ever got anywhere interesting by conforming. (laughs) That's really wonderful. Thank you, Micah, so much for joining me on the show. Yeah, Charlie, thank you for including me in the in the dialogue and uh, I hope that some of your listeners will uh, become more interested in house. This episode of Switched on Pop was produced by me, Charlie Harding, with additional production work by Susan Kaminar, Pergo Pergolizzi, and Michael Maffetone. Our design is done by Luke Harris. I want to say a big thank you to Michael Selkine for coming on the show and sharing his story with us as well as the origins of house music. On top of being one of the absolute smartest minds about house music, he's also an amazing DJ. You should really check out some of his sets with his DJ duo, Micah Jackson, at mixcloud.com slash Micah Jackson. Switched on Pop is part of the Panoply Network, and you can check out more of our episodes on switchedonpop.com, Google Play, or iTunes, where we would really love it if you would leave us a review. You can also talk to us on Twitter at switchedonpop. And if you're missing Nate, he'll be back with us again in two weeks with his report from the Scottish Highlands. Until then, thanks for listening.
Support for Switched On Pop comes from VibeCheck. If you need more of my friend Sam Sanders in your life, then you'll want to check out his new pod called VibeCheck. Each week, Sam and his two best friends, writer Saeed Jones and journalist and producer Zach Stafford, make sense of what's going on in the news and culture, from foreign policy to how to heal from a breakup. Every Wednesday, they check the vibe of what's going on in the world and how it all feels. It's like your favorite group chat come to life. Listen to and follow Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts.